Now when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. That's uh, the opening verses of Matthew chapter 2, and this is the Living the Word Bible Podcast. I'm Sarah Chris Meyer, talking with women about the Bible and the difference it makes in our lives. If you're listening right as this episode comes out, I wish you a happy Thanksgiving. We're headed into Advent, and I expect for many of you, if you're like me, before the weekend's done, you're going to be pulling down a crash from the attic and dusting off your outdoor lights, preparing to journey, as it were, with those magi to Bethlehem. Maybe you're tempted to wonder sometimes, what does a sweet baby in a manger have to offer a world that seems to be spinning out of control? Maybe that is why the church makes us look on the eve of Advent at Jesus' second coming as well, the day that he will return to end all of this chaos and bring peace everywhere and forever. I'm speaking, of course, of the solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the Universe, which we will celebrate in just a few days. King of the Universe, you know, I, I love that title, but what does that mean that our Savior is our King? I have invited Deborah Holliday to trace the idea of kingship through salvation history to give us a deeper understanding and also to help us welcome Christ the King into our hearts and our lives. Deborah, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you, Sarah. I'm happy to be back. So glad to have you here. Now, you taught Old Testament scripture for many years at the Denver Catholic Biblical School. What particularly draws you to this theme of kingship in Scripture? I think there are two things that draw me. The idea that, as you said, it is very foreign to us. So it's one of those topics that's worth looking into and worth exploring because it is so dominant in Scripture. And the other thing is um, just the idea of if God is our king and we are children of God, then we are royalty. We are nobility. So what does that mean for us? How does that present itself to us? And how should we be acting in a world like this? Hmm. I remember my mom saying to me when I was a little girl, you know, you're a daughter of the king. Don't ever forget that as I went off to school. Exactly. Well, where did this idea of kingship originate? Thinking scripturally here, where do we see it first? Well, as far as kingship the the relevance of kingship for for salvation history it really does begin um i would say with probably the call of abraham because one of the things that happens in the call of abraham is that um, god tells him that kings will come forth from him but prior to that we don't have kings there's basically you know clans of people, families, there's leaders, but there's not this idea of one king over many people. There's more of this idea of a, a father figure or a, a that's over the top of the clan, right? But as, as humanity expands after the flood and after the gathering at the Tower of Babel, where everybody starts to gather into cities, mm. then you have this big gathering of people, you have this need for some kind of leadership over the top. But the Hebrews were supposed to be very different from that. 
they were not supposed to really have a king because God was their king. God had kind of formed them as a people, you know, with the, you have, as I mentioned, the call of Abraham and after Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, right? Jacob who becomes Israel, Mm -hmm. right? We have this whole idea that um, Israel ends up in bondage under a tyrant king, Pharaoh, right? And God is going to raise up not a king, but a shepherd, right? Moses is a shepherd, raises up a shepherd to gather his people and take them out of slavery, right? So, and into this land that he's going to promise to give them. So you have this idea of kingship being a positive and a negative all the way at the beginning. And Mm -hmm. that these foreign kings, these earthly kings are not representative of what a king should be. God is representative of what the king should be. So we move forward to Israel and if they're meant to have God himself as the king, how did they end up with a human king? That's the problem. Israel wanted to be like everybody else. And it's the same thing we see in children, right? They want what all the other kids have. Even if their parent says, no, this isn't good for you. You know, this this is what I want you to have. The kids are like, yeah, but Joey down the block, he's got this or Mary's got this, right? That's how Israel became. It's like she looked all around her and said, there's everybody else has a king. How come we don't have a king? And God did this on purpose because he didn't want an earthly king to lord over the people. And he warns about that from the very beginning. So you see that Moses is raised up as a leader, right, to bring the people out of slavery in Egypt. After Moses dies, Joshua takes over, right? Joshua is a leader helping them get into the promised land, helping them get set up. But God doesn't give them a king. You know, you have the judges after that, right? Anytime that there's a a problem, God gives them a leader that they need, but not a king. And by the end of Judges, you have this explicit idea being brought out that there is no king in Israel. There is no king in Israel. And it's repeated several times in the book of Judges. And then you have the book of Samuel open up with the birth of Samuel and Samuel becoming basically the last judge per se, right? Um, And the people eventually saying to him, well, we don't want this kind of leader. We want a king like all the other nations. Why won't you give us a king like all the other nations? And I'd like to just look at this just briefly. So it's in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel and said to him, behold, you're old and weak. We don't know what's going to happen, basically. (laughs) Um, So we want you to appoint for us a king to govern us like all the nations. Israel is supposed to show all of the other nations who God is, not to be like all the other nations. Right. So Samuel says, God is your king. Why would you want an earthly king? Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Hmm. So how do they end up with a king? Because they've rejected God as a king. Wow. They want a king like all the other nations. And what's interesting is that just a few verses down, 
Samuel tells them, this is what's going to happen if you get a king, right? These are going to be the ways of the earthly king. And this goes all the way back to Deuteronomy, to the law, right? Moses is told, eventually, the people are going to ask for a king. God tells Moses this. When you get into the land, when the people get settled in, they're going to reject me. They're going to ask for a king. And this is what's going to happen. The king's going to lord over them. And he's not going to rule benevolently like God does. God is perfectly merciful, perfectly just. Earthly kings are not. That's why in Deuteronomy, God actually gives instructions for the king. This is what you have to do. You can't do this. You can't do this. You can't do this. And by the way, king, you have to copy the book of the law and keep it with you all the time. They didn't have Xerox, right? This means write it, handwrite it down. (laughs) No, they did not. But how often do you think about this, that when you write something down, that's how you remember it. And if you have to write something down and keep reading it every day, which is what we should be doing with scripture, right? We should be reading it every day or hopefully, but that's, that's what was supposed to lead the king to be like God, to be a godly king. But of course, we'll see later on through the books of first and second Kings that they can't even find the book of the law by the end of the <laughs> second Kings. They're like, and then they find it in a temple and they're like, Oh, they read it and like, ah, kind of in trouble. We haven't been doing any of this stuff. But this is this is what the importance is of recognizing that there's a difference between earthly kings and God is king. So interesting because the first king, so God said, okay, I will give them a king. And he gives them Saul, who is kind of like the kind of king they're looking for, you know, tall, handsome, whatever. Absolutely mighty. Yeah, but he doesn't follow God's way. So then we have the second king, King David, who is a man after God's own heart. And I talk about David because he really becomes the model uh, both for the king and also his kingdom becomes the model for God's kingdom. Talk about David. The language that God uses after he rejects Saul as king, because Saul doesn't follow anything that the Lord tells him to do, right? He's very rash. So who does God choose for his king? He says in 1 Samuel chapter 16, I'm going to send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I provided for myself a king among his sons. So the language that's used there is that finally God says, you know, to Samuel, this is the guy that I want. You had your chance at picking the guy. That didn't work out very well. This is the man that I want. I want this tiny son of Jesse. Jesse's youngest son is a shepherd. All of his big brothers are out there doing big brother things. And David's out there in the field shepherding his sheep. And that's who God wants as a king. So David, the youngest son of Jesse, a shepherd, a kid at the time. What do we know about him as king? What kind of king was he? He's the one that unites Israel. And that's the first time that you have the kingdom of Israel is under David, right? And it doesn't last very long, unfortunately. 
David unites all of the tribes. We find out a little bit later on that David's going to have a son that's also going to be king. Very different king than David. David is a man of war. He's he's gathering his people together and protecting them from all of those threats outside. And that's that's one of the reasons that they they wanted a king too, is they want a king that's going to go fight for them. And David does just that. David is a warring king. I like the picture of a shepherd because we think of a warring king as somebody who's out there just trying to conquer and do away with other people and so on. But a shepherd establishes their safe place to live for the sheep, and he fights off the wolves and the lions or whoever it is that comes after them to try to tear them apart, and he feeds them. You know, that beautiful Psalm 23 that describes what a shepherd is. And of course, Jesus saying, I am the true shepherd. So being a shepherd is one of the main reasons that he's going to be the model king. Another thing is his anointing. What was What's the big deal about anointing? There are only two people that get anointed in scripture, and those are priests and kings. So you may recognize the word for anointed, because contrary to what many people think, Christ is not Jesus's last name. (laughs) It is his title, right? Christ means in Greek, anointed one. The Hebrew for that would be Messiah, right? Messiah. So Messiah. In Hebrew, you have the Messiah. In Greek, you have Christ. It's the same thing. It's the anointed one. And the king is anointed. So when we're looking for the Messiah later on, they're looking for the anointed king. And that would be in David's line because there were kings later on in Israel in the north, but they were not the anointed king, Davidic kings. Exactly. So as far as what happens, and David, I love that idea that you brought up the shepherd because David is acting like a shepherd for his people, right? He has them gathered together in the promised land which God had given them, right? But he's also now protecting his people. That's why he has to go to war because those people don't want him to be there. So he's protecting his people. But I think what's interesting is that God also tells him in 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he shall be my son. That's really beautiful as well, right? Not only does God establish the the kingship through the line of David, he says, I will be his father. I will be the king's father the king will be my son. You asked me earlier, what was so special about David? And I think that oftentimes we overlook the good attributes of David because what is he known for? The incident with Bathsheba, Mm -hmm. right? And killing Bathsheba's husband, right? Having a child out of wedlock, basically. It's the thing that we tend to do with everybody. We tend to remember their mistakes and not what their good characteristics were. So why is God, why does God love David? Why is David always referred to as a man after God's own heart? 
no matter what David's sins are, the one thing he never does is turn his back on God. Hmm. He never goes and worships other gods throughout his life. So you'll see even when he gets called out on his behavior with Bathsheba and all of that, he repents. He turns back to God and he recognizes his sin and he repents. And what does he write? Psalm 51, probably one of the most beautiful Psalms in scripture, right? I think it's important to recognize that earthly kings are human. They're going to sin. There's guidelines that God has them for them. But what God wanted was a king that would not turn his back on God and not forget that God is his father. You know, we have this one united kingdom of Israel. And after Solomon's death, basically fighting breaks out, that vying for the throne now happens. And you have this, basically the breaking apart of the entire kingdom. So when you think about the the kingdom of Israel, the God established through David, it lasts two generations under David and under Solomon. And then it starts to break apart. Then you have the north and south again. Then you have kings in the north. You have kings in the south. So during this time period, we do have a lot of warring going on. God uses his prophets to say, don't turn your back on me. Don't make alliances with other nations. If you do, you will end up in exile. You will end up being taken over by the very nations that you've made alliances with. But in addition to the prophets giving this kind of warning of what's going to happen in this kind of gloom, (laughs) because it does get very gloomy, he also gives this, always gives us hope. Ezekiel is in exile. He's speaking during the exile, right? So he's over in Babylon. He gets called by the Lord to prophesy. And he tells the people and the king what is going to happen. And in Ezekiel 34, he says, I will save my flock and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God and my servant David shall be prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. Right. So he promises them, my servant David. Now, isn't David already gone? Yeah, hundreds of years before. What does it mean that he's going to bring his servant David to be the shepherd king over them? Do you think that it's an accident that Jesus is called the good shepherd? John chapter 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He says in verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. As the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for my sheep. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, he knows the prophecies. Everybody else knows the prophecies. They all know. So he is coming as the king, as the new shepherd king, to gather his people together, to save them. The other really cool thing when you look at Ezekiel 34 is, of course, that God says, after saying how horrible the current shepherds are, he not only says that he will bring David, he says, I myself will be their shepherd. And so you have this idea of, okay, there's going to be a Davidic king, which means someone from the, Div- the line of David is going to be put on the throne, but also that he will be the son of God. 
So uh, there's a long time of expectation then and waiting after Ezekiel. And eventually, as we Christians see it, you know, Jesus came. How did Jesus fulfill that expectation? What are some of the little ways that he filled this expectation for the Messiah? I think it's great that you bring up the idea of expectation because we started out with the wise men, with your reading of the wise men. And their first question is, where is the king of the Jews? Yeah. Everybody is waiting. Messianic expectation is very high right around this time because of scripture. You know, we'll see that in the book of Daniel, but everybody is waiting for this king to come. This is what's been prophesied over and over again. So they're waiting for Jesus. Jesus is going to fulfill this in a few different ways, gathering his people together. As I mentioned in John chapter 10, he says, I'm gathering my sheep, but I have other sheep that are not in this fold that I will Mm. gather together as well. And that's one of the things that, that Jesus does is he's not just the Messiah of the Jews. He is going to bring in everyone. He's going to bring in the Gentiles as well. You began talking about Christ as king of the universe, right? He's not just king of the Jews, as the expectation is for the Magi saying, or what is the inscription over the cross, right? Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. He's king over all. So he's going to bring, as a shepherd brings in and cares for his flock, um, and we have that in Luke chapter 11, I believe it is as well, that Jesus talks about being a shepherd that goes after the lost sheep. What's beautiful is we see that Jesus isn't just sitting down with the Pharisees and all of the people of power. He is going out to the margins as king and bringing them in and saving them. Seeking the lost. The lost, the outcasts, the the sick. He brings in all of them and heals them. So healing, he brings peace. He feeds us. He brings us to living water. I mean, one of the beautiful things about this solemnity of Christ the King is it takes that passage in Ezekiel. We hear that, and then we hear Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And then in the gospel, we have Jesus coming in the end to sort the sheep and the goats and actually judging. And I think one of the things that we have to remember as far as what Jesus does, you mentioned to me when we were talking earlier that what kind of king gets crowned with thorns, Mm -hmm. right? And put up on a cross. But remember what happens, that through Jesus's sacrifice, right? Through his death, what was closed was paradise, right? And the king of the universe dies on the cross to reopen paradise. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the other things that Jesus does. He actually gives us the opportunity to be in paradise again with him, as he says to the thief on the cross. And only the king of the universe has that kind of power to open paradise, the gates of paradise, which have been shut and closed and guarded by the cherubim. And he did that by the cross, you know, redeeming us by the power of his blood. And think about this too. He even says that in John, again, in John chapter 18, Pilate says, are you a king? And he says, you have said so. My kingship is not of this world. The important thing to remember, I think, is that what Jesus does is he establishes God's kingdom on earth. He inaugurates it, let's say. Mm -hmm. 
the fullness of that kingdom has not been revealed yet. The fullness of the kingdom is not here. So we're not just anticipating an advent, the first advent, which is the incarnation, but we're waiting for Jesus again to come in glory. That's what we see in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, verse 17. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. So you have this idea of Jesus, the sacrificial lamb, right? The shepherd also in the midst of the throne, which is the kingship, right? Throne means he's a king and he's going to be their shepherd. He will guide them, as you said, to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's what we wait for. We wait for that time. You know, it's such a beautiful hope. I kind of try to put myself back at the centuries before Christ came. They had a beautiful hope too. But we have more than that because of Jesus's first coming and because of his death, resurrection, ascension, and in particularly because of the the Holy Spirit, we get a lot of those benefits in a spiritual way now. You know, he leads us, he comforts us, he gives us peace, a peace that the world can't understand. And so that in the middle of all the turmoil that we have, when it's very obvious that many lawyer rulers are not godlike, you know, do not rule according to the law of God or with his power coming through them, it could be easy to despair. And yet he is with us in the meantime. And I'm grateful that the church puts this feast up for us to remember as we're waiting for Christ at Christmas, because it reminds us there's this beautiful future ahead, uh, and yet he can reign in our hearts now. As Shepherd King, he feeds us right now. Yes. feeds us not just with food, but he feeds us with his very being in the Eucharist. So we have the ability every day. What a blessing that we have this ability every day to unite ourselves with our shepherd king. Amen. You know, in the Eucharist. And he he tells us this too. Let's come full circle here when we're talking about kingship. We've talked about the first king, which was David, right? Well, was Saul, but the first king, the king that's after God's own heart. This prophecy that that David is going to come again, right? This king will come through the line of David. And Jesus says this, the whole of scripture ends with Jesus proclaiming, not only that I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to you with this testimony to the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. So Jesus in the book of Revelation tells us that He is the fulfillment of what all of this idea of kingship has been all through scripture and the perfection of it, not just the fulfillment, but the complete perfection of what kingship is, because he's the one that feeds us and brings us to springs of living water. He's the one that wipes every tear from our eye. And he's the one that says, come, come to us. Hmm. Beautiful. Deb, you may have noticed these images are picked up in the readings this Sunday for Christ the King, which focus on Jesus as shepherd. 
So if you don't mind, I would like to close by reading the 23rd Psalm, which begins, of course, the Lord is my shepherd. So uh, if you're listening, pray with me now, if you will. Come, Holy Spirit, open our hearts and minds to receive your word. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe, thank you for also being our shepherd. Help us to hear your voice as you call to us throughout this Advent. Give us grace to live as your children, embracing your reign over our hearts and minds, over our wills and our actions, and always proclaiming your kingdom with word and deed to those around us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Mary, Mother of the Word, pray for us. So thank you, Deb. It's been wonderful talking with you today. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about it. And I pray for each and every one of you out there that you can just take some time this Advent season and read about what Jesus has done for us and think about how he can reign in our hearts and in anticipation of him ruling over us in peace eventually. A wonderful suggestion. Now, this is Sarah Chris Meyer, and this has been the Living the Word Bible Podcast. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll join me every Thursday for conversations with women who love and live God's Word. And I encourage you to make time during Advent, daily if possible, but to read the Bible. Maybe one idea would be to meditate on the Sunday responsorial psalm ahead of time each week to get you in the right spirit as we long for Christ not just to come, but to come again. You might also be interested in the daily Advent reading plan that's in the back of the Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible. I'll post a download on Instagram, at Living the Word Bible, so that you can print it out if you don't have the Bible. And now I wish you a blessed Advent season and Christmas season as well. And may God bless you as you read His Word.